and welcome to another conversation in anthropology at Deakin, a podcast about life, the universe and anthropology. I'm Tanya King, a senior lecturer in anthropology at Deakin University. I'm joined by my co-hosts, the impeccable Timothy Neal, a senior research fellow at the Alfred Deakin Institute for Citizenship and Globalisation, and David Border-Giles, a lecturer in anthropology at Deakin University. We come to you with support from the Faculty of Arts and Education at Deakin University and in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. As ever, we're joined by a visiting fellow anthropologist to discuss their work, the state of the discipline, and what anthropology has to tell us in the 21st century. Our guest today is Dr. Nancy Shepard-Hughes, Emerita Professor of the Graduate School at the University of California, Berkeley. It would be fair to call Nancy's career illustrious, spanning research on social suffering and structural violence in Ireland, Brazil, South Africa, and internationally, through the global trade in kidneys and other organs. Most recently, she has written about the scandal of child sex abuse in the Catholic Church. She is the author of Saints, Scholars, and Schizophrenics, Mental Illness in Rural Ireland, Death Without Weeping, The Violence of Everyday Life in Brazil, and The Last Commodity, Post-Human Ethics, Global Injustice, and the Traffic in Organs, as well as countless articles and other book chapters. She's and al- edited volumes. <laughs> she is also the co-founder of Organs Watch, a watchdog organisation that monitors organ trafficking. In addition, as is often our custom, today we're joined by a guest host from Deakin University. For this episode, we've invited Dr. Tanya King, an environmental and maritime anthropologist whose ethnographic research in regional Victoria explores the fishing industry and she writes about the intersections of resource extraction, gender deregulation and mental illness. She's also most recently the editor of At Home on the Waves. So welcome, all of you. Wonderful to be here. So Nancy, uh, where we usually begin is with a little bit of biography. What made of you an anthropologist and what leads you to sniff out such consistently compelling, confronting topics? Well, I would actually say as a young, very young child in Brooklyn, Williamsburg today is a sort of an artist community, but it was an immigrant slum when I was born. And it was a time at the end of the Holocaust when people were coming And the community was a mix at that time of Catholics and Jews. The sense was, don't ask any questions. So there was a kind of a a silence. And I broke it. I mean, I broke it in school. And I had a large extended Czech family that had come from Prague. My father's relatives were from Germany like four generations before and um, there were very few of them. But I had eight aunts, two uncles. We all lived on one block, a grandma, a grandfather. Snojemski, Snojemska was their name. And my grandma had been a chef in Vienna when they met, came to Brooklyn and lost all of their belongings in a fire, and so ended up with all these children in one or two rooms behind my grandfather's uh, shop where he was the bootmaker. Uh, But he was an atheist, very strong. And my uh, grandmother went occasionally to church, but was not really much of a Catholic. She spoke Yiddish. And so people always said, well, she must have been Jewish. I said, no, we lived in a Jewish neighborhood. (laughs) And she liked to cook. (laughs) And so (laughs) she learned. But anyway, it was a very interesting time because there were people coming. You weren't supposed to ask them about why they came. We had uh, one of my aunts and my mother and their husbands and children bought an old house. It was a piano factory, 
and uh, <laughs> they did a lot of work to sort of make it livable. But just thinking about the Holocaust issue it was always in the back of my mind because we took in, we had a third floor that we rented to people, and some of them were refugees. And um, we were always told, you know, don't talk to them. But when I went to Queens College in New York City and took a class with my first mentor, who was Hortense Powdermaker, who is not a famous anthropologist, but she was probably one of the best teachers of fieldwork that you could ever imagine. I really learned ethnography from her. In her class, which was in a, a field that doesn't really exist anymore, culture and personality, because it was seen as very stereotypical and whatever, but in that class was when we first began to talk about the effect of the death camps. And it was really like breaking a border of sorts because there was silence in the room. Many of us in the um, room were older, not me, but many of the students were, and Hortense asked, she said, would anyone here like to tell us about the Holocaust? Mm. And there were about four people in the class who had gone through it. So I guess you might say my interest in the dark side of life, I think it comes in part from that and trying to break silences and talk to people. Mm. I had a wonderful friend who said to me in the first grade, do you know that your people killed my people? And I said, I don't think so. I don't think they did. And then the other part of uh, Williamsburg that was quite interesting and uh, three other things that led to me being uh, an anthropologist. One was in 1953, if I've got it right, there was a migration, immigration of Puerto Ricans arranged by the mayor because the subways needed, you know, some work. And they brought people from the hills of Puerto Rico who were sugarcane cutters, oddly enough. And they took over our block on South Third Street. And most of the white people then living there all left, except for my family. So that was another something that would pull me to anthropology because they could not speak English. They were rural people. Uh, the children would run around without clothing on. And the old Polish ladies would say, this is a scandal, you know, what are they doing? And uh, our family was pretty open. And um, there had been a fire a whole tenement house, you might say, and people were in the street without anything, and we took them in. Uh, that was when we really began to get to know them. Mm -hmm. So uh, there was that, and then also there was my dad, who was um, self-educated, a lover of literature and um, composer of popular music. He played um, piano in bars and, you know, even during the Prohibition. In fact, he met my mom in a, uh, one of these bars. You know, my dad was um, playing the piano and asked her, he said, what's a nice lady like you doing in a place like this? <laughs> that was sort of the beginning of their, of their marriage. He also uh, played when some gangsters came into this place. They had guns and rifles and whatever. One guy came over and he put a $50 bill down on the piano and he said, What's your name? And my dad said, George. He said, okay, George, keep on playing. <laughs> so he played through that. Wow. But anyway, my, my dad was uh, self-educated and read everything from physics to um, the best literature and had uh, created a, a library of used books and whatever, and our house was full of animals and books. The, the animals came through my brother, who was very, very interested in natural history, 
And uh, we took advantage of all the museums in New York, which now you have to pay for. Mm-hmm. But in those days, you got on the train, and we went everywhere, and the favorite was natural, the Natural History Museum. And I think that was my other introduction to anthropology. Yeah, right. Because... Those kind um, of older institutions of... Yeah, you know, the dioramas and all of that. But what really drew me was the Native American rooms that they had. And when I was quite early, I went to a little Catholic school in Williamsburg, St. Peter and Paul's. And once a year, they'd say, well, what do you want to do when you grow up? I told Sister Teresa, I said, I want to be a naturalist. And she said, oh, my goodness, dear, you must always keep your clothing on. (laughs) So shocking from the get-go. I was actually two summers, a junior natural history um, person uh, in the summer. I, I would go and spend the whole day there. You know, even though I'm a critic of curation of some by some museums I still I guess I would have to say that part of why I'm an anthropologist is because of the Museum of Natural History but when I um, was a little older and I was quite a pious little Catholic girl although I got sent home from maybe about the fourth or fifth grade couldn't hold my mouth and was telling the story of uh, evolution and how it worked and and I had good nuns I had bad nuns this nun said go home and don't come back until you can recognize the sin that you have just told us. And I said, what do you mean? Well, God could do it this way. I mean, he could do anything, right? (laughs) And I said, but sister, sister, I always said, you can see it. You can see it, sister. You go there and all of a sudden you see the wing of a bird and you see your arm and you go, well, of course we're related. And sister, have you ever been to the zoo? (laughs) <laughs> which I also loved. And, you know, and, and finally I did meet some nuns who said, it's okay, Nancy. We're maybe not ready for what it is, but it's okay. Mm-hmm. And so when a nun finally asked me in high school, and, or maybe before that, and said, what do you really want to do, Nancy? What do you really want to do? And this goes back to that we don't really grow up, most of us, thinking we're going to be an anthropologist. Mm-hmm. And I said again, sister, I said, sister, I... I have this dream all the time, and the dream is that I'm somewhere that's in the tropics and warm and beautiful, and I'm sitting with a bunch of people, and we're talking to each other. I mean, it really was an anthropological dream. And she said, maybe you'll be a missionary. Oh, I said, no, I don't think I want to be a missionary. I said, I want to talk to them. (laughs) After that, I went to Queens College, and I dropped out of uh, undergraduate school twice because then I became a 60s person. Although my brother, uh, being five years older and being you know, somewhat of a patriarchal family, although my dad always wanted me to do what I wanted to do, it was kind of like um, Virginia Woolf in her three guineas. You know, um, girls weren't supposed to go to college. My brother was the very first in this whole family, this large extended family, who went to uh, college, and of course, uh, you know, I wanted to do it too, but my dad said, it would be nice, Nancy, because we were very close. He said, if you could maybe, I could get you a job at the Brooklyn Union Gas Company, which is where you worked. <laughs> and I, I, I sort of put it off. I said, oh yeah, Dad, but you know what? Um, George went away. He went to North Carolina, got a big scholarship and whatever. And I said, I actually got two big scholarships, a region scholarship, and, you know, I could go anywhere, uh, you know, for free. 
and school was practically free anyway. Could you let me just try? And so my mom came in and she said, well, you're not going to go where you want to, because I said I wanted to go to uh, NYU because I wanted to live in the village. I discovered the village uh, in high school. Graduate school as a, as a direction yeah. to a lifestyle in the village. Oh, God. Mm-hmm. And so it's a beautiful I, plan. And here's some of my, uh, I guess, little lies that I've done in my life. Although I was still pretty much, you know, a practicing Catholic girl, every Sunday I, you know, would go to an early mass and then around noon, I'd say, well, I'll see you in a couple of hours. And (laughs) they'd say, well, where are you going, Nancy? And I said, I think I'll go to a novena in this other church or something. And I got on the train, and of course, I would go right to Greenwich Village. And I had a place that I went, I'd say, just about every Sunday, and it was called, it's still there, horrible name, the Café Wa on 4th Street. And it was because Richie Havens, who was not known at all at that time, uh, Bob Dylan sang there, too. And there were many people that were there. But Richie Havens. Richie Havens, I just, uh, I fell in love with him, basically. And it was a time when he had what we used to call conked hair. He had lost teeth and whatever. Mm-hmm. But I fell in love with the music and when he talked. And, you know, he came over once and he said, uh, Does your parents know that you're here? <laughs> <laughs> It's a presumptuous question. I, I had long hair at that time, and it was in braids, you know, so I, I must have looked like, you know, I don't know. Even younger than and you were. And I said, yeah. I just love the music, and my dad's a piano player and whatever. And uh, he said, let me get you a cup of cocoa. And he sat down with me, and he told but he was lovely. He was just uh, excellent. He said, but maybe you should tell your parents that this is where you are every week. <laughs> I want to ask you a quick question, therefore, about like graduate school. I often think of anthropology today as quite a polite, publicly polite Mm. discipline, Mm. privately very critical. You are kind of distinctive (laughs) because you don't shy away from disagreement, both with your colleagues and sometimes with your local collaborators and interlocutors. Has this always been part of your intellectual practice in graduate school, in your first years out of your PhD? You know, were you uh, a disagreeer? Oh, I think always. Yeah, I think always. I'll talk about how I went to graduate school and what it was like at Berkeley in that time. But I guess I didn't also explain the other part of the question about Hortense Powdermaker and why she was so important to me and how it happened, because there's a kind of a secret story there. And it's the way I operate in the world, good or bad. Okay, and many people will think it might be bad. I was telling the story about my dad saying, okay, try Queens College, you know. So I went there, and I didn't take any of the required courses because I had no interest in them. But I saw this class of Hortenses, and actually the first class was Peoples and Cultures in Africa. And I thought, gee, that sounds really exciting. So uh, in those days, you know, before (laughs) internet and whatever, you stood on long lines, and then, you know, you said, I'm going to register in this class. And so I said, I'm going to be in this class. And a person looked at me and said, well, you're a a rising freshman, which, you know, second semester freshman, and you have to take required courses. Yeah, I said, but is there a way I could get into this class? And he said, well, uh, you could talk to Miss, because she always called herself Miss Powdermaker. You can ask her, and if she gives you a note, then we can uh, register you. So, of course, what I did was I wrote the note. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So good to live in analog days. (laughs) And so 
So I got into the class, and I was, it was very, very sophisticated. I had never taken a single anthropology class. Uh, I wasn't prepared, you know, for an upper division class. And I got very, very nervous, and I was very quiet. It was maybe 30 of us. It wasn't a large class. But I read, and I read, and I read, and I read, and I read. And the one thing that I had, which I learned, I guess, from Catholic high school, was, I wish I had it now, and I don't, but we memorized everything. It was like being in a Muslim Islamic school. You just memorized, 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 memorized. And so I memorized, memorized, memorized everything. And came the, um, the midterm. I was so nervous that I just about fainted. And then two weeks later, I guess, when Horty, as I called her later on, had done all of the grades and everything, um, she came in and she said, um, there's someone in this class uh, who should not be in the class, and he or she knows who they are, and I would like them to talk with me afterwards. And I thought, this is it. I get thrown out. <laughs> and so... I went to her and she said, Miss Shepper. I said, yes. She said, how did you get into this class? I said, Miss Powdermaker, I signed your name. <laughs> and she said, do you know you could be thrown out of this school for doing that? I said, yes, and I'm willing to leave. I just, I just loved it so much. And then she said, I should just take you to whatever it was and get the penalty and whatever over with, she said, but you got the highest grade in the class. <laughs> and I said, it was because I really, 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 really studied. <laughs> and that's how we met. And she said, if you ever do anything like that again, you know. <laughs> um, and then anyway. she invited you to come and study with her. Yes, uh, so I kept dropping out of Queen's College, which turned out to be a fabulous school. I mean, here I wanted to go to NYU, I wanted to go to, you know, other places, but here I was taking the bus and the train, you know, to go to Queen's College, which wasn't what I wanted. <laughs> and um, it was uh, a marvelous place. And my transition to it uh, was kind of hilarious, very crowded, going up stairwells and whatever. And then I would see Professor Resnick, who was a teacher of political economy. I took all these classes, I said, with that. And I just thought he was fantastic, most incredible. And so when he would be walking one way on the stairwell and there'd be like 50 of us going down, I would just stop. I'd stop everybody because that's what you did with nuns. <laughs> and I waited for, for Mr. Resnick to get up. And then when he would walk into the room, I always stood up. <laughs> and he'd say, sit down, Miss Jepper, sit down. You don't have to get up. <laughs> have loving response. <laughs> so I carried the, the habitus, basically, yeah. of that. But then I argued. Mm-hmm. So Mr. Resnick was actually a Marxist, and he became very important to me later. But he began to say some things, and, you know, I was conservative nuns, you know, Catholic. And, and I think at one point I raised my hand, because he did that, and I got up and I said, Mr. Resnick, I cannot listen to what you are saying because you're talking like a communist, <laughs> you know, something like that. And I was terrified and shaking, you know, doing it. But that was actually how we got to become friends. He said, thank you for telling me that. 
<laughs> and, and then we sat down, and I was worried about myself being a communist, and I'll, not only because I had some uncles that, you know, worked in beer factories and were great labor people and all, would take me to union meetings and things, so I had all that kind of a background. But when I was a senior in uh, the Our Lady of Wisdom Academy, which was a little French academy for working-class young girls, a third of whom were supposed to become nuns, for some reason they got a strange idea to send one of the seniors to Russia to meet the Orthodox uh, Christians there that existed and to see if there could be some mediation. Anyway, I went off with uh, about six people from Fordham, all of whom were students that were Catholic and were studying uh, Russian and spoke Russian, and I went along with them. I got to Lvov and Moscow and Leningrad and Warsaw, and I'd never been more than 20 miles outside of New York City. In fact, never been to Boston, never been to D.C., never been in a plane, even though on weekends, this for working-class kind of people, we used to go to um, the airports and watch the planes. That was considered a, a wonderful thing to do on the weekend. So the idea of being on this plane, and the first plane you know, I go to is to Moscow. So again, this was a, another thing that, uh, because I, uh, to please the nuns, I was reading like FBI stuff, essentially. I mean, awful books, they said. I had to be really careful because they might try to, you know, convert me or whatever it was. It's such a curious idea of, like, political identity. Yeah. I think seems quite foreign now. Yeah. yeah. Where political identity is something more mobile and liquid. Whereas yeah. it sounds yeah. like, you know, you had a fear of something within you, almost right. like there's right. some buried communist essential right. inside you that might... That be liberated liber- by, right. ex- yeah. you know, too much exposure to, uh, yeah. to mm-hmm. in-the-flesh communism. But it was a total, of course, eye-opening time sure. for me. Mm-hmm. And the nuns had put all of these medals and boxes and rosary beads, and they said I could give them to people. And as soon as I landed, and uh, I remember I was dressed terribly. I had an ugly pair of very cheap sneakers to walk on, and I had one literally $5 suit that we got somewhere at Cheap Charlie's or whatever. And here I were with very elite people from Fordham who had money and whatever. And, uh, you know, they were quite nice to me and say, well, maybe, you know, you'd like to wear this jacket. I said, well, yeah, I'd love to. But once I got to <laughs> Moscow, everyone liked my clothes. <laughs> and they were all asking me for my clothes. <laughs> and I did. So I gave the ugly sneakers to somebody. <laughs> and, and they gave me something in return. But when I got there, I was so impressed by the beauty of Leningrad then and in the museums and the art was incredible because I loved, you know, the museums and had a background in that. And then we started having debates, and that was part of the the idea. And so here I was with college students. I'm still in high school, and we were arguing about communism, basically, with these young people. And I sat there and I listened. By this time, I'd seen a hospital, and I'd seen uh, socialist medicine, and I said, it's terrific. At that point, it was. I mean, it really, after they'd fell down. But it was incredible medicine. I guess I always had an interest in in medicine. And I said, this is great, and it's free. And then I saw women as bus drivers, and I saw women doing construction work, and I said, wow, (laughs) this is a whole different deal, and it's something to really 
you know, think about. But still, I said, no, I'm here representing Our Lady of Wisdom Academy. <laughs> and so they had this great debate. And I got up, and I started talking and really debating with them and realizing that I was more on their side than against it. And at one point, when uh, I was talking about labor and about medicine and so forth, they said, where did you read this? And I said, Pope Leo the Thirteenth encyclical. I can't remember. And he actually wrote about socialism in a positive way. <laughs> and they clapped and they laughed. And so then by the time I left, I was supposed to be giving talks all over. And the nun said, uh-uh. You can't give those talks. But I was the editor of a newspaper that we had called Sagesse or Wisdom. And it was a glossy, it won uh, awards for poetry and everything. And, you know, I thought at that point I would probably be a journalist because I really loved it. And I worked with my Latin nun, who was also a good writer. And she and a couple of progressive nuns said, write whatever you want. We'll edit it a bit. And so the whole quarterly that came out was all about Moscow and everything that I had. Anyway, I guess I can say that the church can be good and, it, you know, it helped a lot of things. I've just been thinking the whole time, what did your father make of your trip to Moscow and your success at university, ultimately? No, he was always a supporter of me, always. I, I got into troubles, I mean, uh, various ones. I mean, I dropped out of Queen's College and I went first to Peace Corps and then I did civil rights work afterwards. My parents were not so worried about uh, me being in the Peace Corps in Brazil and whatever, although that was a whole another engagement because it was during the um, military dictatorship at the beginning of it, 1964. And the whole idea that Peace Corps would send us into a dictatorship was really a, a big question. Frank Mankiewicz from the Mankiewicz film person was actually the head of the Latin American desk. And so this, again, was good luck because we were trained, about 100 of us, in uh, Brattleboro, Vermont, uh, where they had uh, some international school and they were used to bringing people in and training them. And uh, during the middle of our training, which was longer than usual because of the dictatorship, they just weren't sure whether they could send us there. They were thinking of sending us to Portugal. And, well, there, there was a dictatorship in Portugal. And then were they going to send us to Mozambique? Or what were they going to do with us? And Mankiewicz came, and uh, he sort of cleaned it up. And he said, look, at we were doing medical work and uh, thought that we would be pretty safe. So the women were all trained as visitadores, which would be like health, a health agents now, you would call them. But it was great. It was the best training. It was military training, and I loved it. I ate it up, and we learned how to, you know, take blood. We learned how to put, um, you know, wounds. We midwife uh, went, got an incredible training, you know. And um, so we went, and, you know, my parents and my dad was a little worried about going to this place, and I wrote every week letters to them, kept a diary, and when my dad died and went, you know, into his belongings that he had, he had every single letter I wrote, and he had each one on a separate, you know, he had them on, like, cardboard, or he had them on, and he had the dates, and he had a map where he saw exactly where I was, but they didn't have money to come and, and see me there. 
So he was a great uh, supporter, and I think for many women that were strong in life, it's often the person that had was very close to their dad, and I was. My mom was very strong and a difficult woman. I loved her dearly. And in her own way, she had more emotional intelligence than anyone else I've ever known. She could pick a person up two seconds, know something about them. But anyway, so that was okay. What he worried about, my dad, was when I came back and um, really wanted to continue the kind of work that I was able to do on the Alta de Cruzeiro, where I was you know, working with um, anti-military stuff and working with people that were literally barefoot and couldn't read and write, but were, <laughs> as everywhere in the world, you find organic intellectuals. And I found them, and they educated me about global politics, things I had never known about. Mm-hmm. And so when I came back, I couldn't bear being in the United States. I just couldn't, you know, because I stayed also longer than the traditional, because I was building this creche, this daycare center, which was also a community center, and they let me stay an extra six months to finish it. Although, <laughs> actually, I was pulled in by the uh, military, and I was actually, so stupidity of me, I guess. I didn't take them seriously because at the beginning, the dictatorship was not as violent at all as like Chile or Uruguay or Argentina, whatever. It became, after I left, very, very dangerous. But at that point, they did arrest people, uh, but they weren't torturing, as far as we know, they, they weren't, at that point, weren't torturing anybody. Uh, but still, you didn't want to get pulled in. But I did get uh, pulled in. I, I got a, a telegram that said I had to go to the Fifth Army, blah, 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 blah. And I went there and pretty much knew how to protect myself. And I did by telling them that I was a good Catholic and I go talk to Padre Orlando or whatever, and this one can tell you. But anyway, the result was that I was put into house arrest for the rest of my time. And I didn't really mind it. It seemed crazy to me, but I didn't know what a house arrest was. I lived on the Alto Cruzero in a little mud hut, and they said I had to stay there. I could work with the women on daycare, the issue of trying to you know, take care of the babies that were, were dying like flies. And every day I had to go down into the municipio and uh, to Judge Geraldo and explain exactly what you were doing. And Geraldo was great, because it turned out that Timbauba was anti-military. And so he said, just do it, just come every day. And he actually taught me how to write Portuguese, because I, I couldn't. I mean, I learned just, uh, and I'm not great with languages. And so he said, well, you know, with this Upaki, this uh, union of the people of the Alto Cruzeiro that you're working on, he said, does it have acts? Does it have laws? Do you have... Well, I said, no, we just kind of have a shell or something or a bullet. We have, everybody wanted to talk. You did that. And, you know, they had their own way of organizing. And I'm, I'm just the animadora technica. That's what they called me. I was the animadora technica. <laughs> I kind of, you yeah. know. Is that like facilitator? Technical yeah. support? <laughs> yeah, just a support person. I don't know, somebody that was. And, um, and so he brought me down and we wrote these acts that protected, which was really good. He was protecting them because without that, the military could have come and, and they did, in fact, they did arrest a couple of the people in the thing. But anyway, so when I went, came back and couldn't bear staying in the States, 
I uh, went back to Queens College, took another couple of courses, took some writing classes, and wrote about Brazil in those classes, and began to realize that I would go back and I would want to write more about them. But they were fictionalized. I wasn't good at fiction. So I found that when I wrote about what actually happened in Brazil, but gave it as a fiction, I mean, of course, I would change it a bit. They said, that's, that's really a good story. That's a good one. <laughs> but again, it wasn't really fiction. But um, I wanted to go to uh, the South for civil rights work because Andy, what was his name? Goodman, I guess, was in one of my writing classes, and he was one of the three guys that had gotten killed in Mississippi. And I had actually, at the time, making a decision to drop out and go to Peace Corps. At the same time, I applied for Mississippi Freedom. Peace Corps came back first. It said Brazil. I said, hell, I'm going to Brazil. (laughs) But then, when I came back, uh, I was in Peace Corps training when Andy and the two other guys, Schwerner and whoever, died. And I said, "Ah, I'll go back. You know, we've got to replace the people that that are gone. And how I went back was I was looking in a garbage can. I pulled this thing out, and it said, if you still think that civil rights needs to be fought for in Alabama, come to a meeting in Manhattan at uh, the next night. And I went the next night, and uh, there was a lawyer, a uh, civil rights lawyer, and he was part of something called the Sharecroppers Fund. I said, that sounded good. Okay. And uh, he said, any of you volunteers will give you a car, a used car, and we'll give you something like $5 for a couple of days or whatever it is to get to Selma. And once you get to Selma, you would stay at this Freedom House. And so I signed in. That's when my dad, you know, I remember him just came and sat down next to me and said, Nance, I don't want you to go. You don't know where you're going. They've killed people there. It was a strange time to go like 67, 68. It's over now. You could do this work here. You don't have to go to, you know, Alabama or Mississippi. And I said, well, I've signed up and I'll go. So many people would have committed themselves to one or two moments of activism. And I know lots of people who have done this and then kind of quietly uh, retreated from their field of engagement to write or to teach or to whatever. And you haven't stopped. <laughs> you keep yeah, you keep I mean, finding new right. new and equally compelling places to work. I wonder, and this might get to the question yeah. about what sort of a militancy or what militant means to you and if it's the same thing as well, it used to be. I think it's an odd word today mm-hmm. to talk about a militant. Uh, I mean, that's certainly the question that came up with the students when we were talking yeah, about... Yeah, what, um, what did they the, ask about? Just coincidentally, in the fourth-year applied anthropology class earlier this week, we were discussing the famous sort of Schaefer Hughes, Roy Andrade. How do you say that? Andrade. 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 So Andrade. Um, thank yeah. you, because yeah. we, that was another thing that we sure. discussed. <laughs> it was how to say the name. <laughs> I forgot that he was the other half. You know, that didn't happen the way it looked. It was that he had written an essay... And I wrote my essay, but then, you know, he was given a chance to revise it or whatever, but it was just by accident. And they said, gee, you have these two different points of view. So, you know, we changed it and and did it as though it were a dialogue. But he had already written almost all of that. So moral anthropology was in the air. Yeah. 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 Fascinating. Yeah. 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 One of the things that the students said when we were discussing it afterwards was that it felt of another time, but it also felt really 
compelling and they said there were aspects of it yeah. that they thought that it would be very inappropriate today yeah and, yeah. and they were wondering would yeah. you write the same thing now if you had the chance would you write about it in the same way sentiment wise not not in terms of necessarily those same words yeah but um, um so i think what you're referring to basically is the kind of privilege i suppose that went with this militant anthropology that we could be campaneras and campaneros that uh, not as leaders you know so tell me were they worried about the political aspect of the idea of being politically committed and then an ethnographer or are they worried about what i hear now uh, like say to my students the undergraduates the art department in terms of you know our faculty are very divided between people who think that public anthropology is fine and those who don't and some who are deeply involved in philosophical anthropology whether it's lacanian or ontology or whatever it is things that i like but um, i think that you know <laughs> Theory and practice must be together. I mean, I'm a Bourdieuian in that sense. You know, to the, you can't. I mean, you, or uh, Bazzaglianu, because I've followed the radical psychiatrist Franco Bazzaglia. But today, what I'm getting from my students, and maybe this is what they're saying, I, maybe I need more, um, is kind of more like a identity politics. That probably isn't as strong here. It's so strong, uh, I think, in the States today that it's the end of solidarity, the end of the possibility that we could ever work together on something. And it comes not only from my students, but I have four grandsons, and one is at Oberlin College, which is very, very involved you know, in identity politics. And his dad, Santos, is uh, colored, South African colored. And he identifies as colored, his mom, uh, my daughter Jennifer is a historian and also an Episcopal priest and teaches at UC Irvine and works on colonial history and is very radical. But I've just had, about a week before coming here, Santiago is now in Bogota and he's working, and it was a really painful, just, we love each other enormously, but Jennifer and I and Santiago were really talking about whether a white person could ever really understand and work side by side with someone who was brown or black. And I said I would never go to a place where I wasn't wanted. For example, in Alabama, when I got there, okay, it had just become black power. It had just happened, and I was like, had just come from Brazil. Uh, it's like I was asleep for three years, and then I come back, and all of a sudden there's a new world, and I'm white. And we figured it out. I, I came all the way in a car with uh, three people, and they looked, when I got to the Snick house, they said, what's this white lady doing here? <laughs> and I said, I don't know, whatever you want to do, you know, I'm, I'm here for it. And it worked out because then there was um, a SNCC house and then there was a Freedom House. And I, in fact, recruited a few other white people to still come down to work on a project that SNCC wanted. And um, another thing brought me to anthropology again because it was research. And I said, oh, I don't want to do research. <laughs> and they said, well, you're not going to be in our SNCC meetings. <laughs> We're not going to be telling you our secrets. But... What we need is to know certain things. We need to know how hungry people are. I said, hmm, I think I know quite a bit about hunger. <laughs> 
So that's what I did. I did a survey with some people that came in the summers and worked with me, and we did a study of 500 black tenant family farmers, and it ended up in, eventually in the Supreme Court. But it was, anyway, about the way in which even the federal programs that were designated for farmers and tenant farmers were being stolen by the whites. But yes, I understood that you might be put in another place or told you can do this or you could do that. And I said, but to say that you can't have solidarity and be a follower, not a leader, I can't accept that. And it's so racialized as well. I said, Santiago, come on. I'm a white person, but I don't have a white heart. <laughs> I, I just don't. Uh, I'm sorry. And, of course, we hugged and, you know, whatever. And um, But I think that this um, notion that we can't overcome the way we were thrown into the world. And this is where I get very sort of existential. I mean, you know, you get to, uh, you have no control over what you look like or who you are. And, you know, I guess I'm an old civil rights worker and I'm just not going to give that up. And I'm an old communist, I suppose. There's something I've always appreciated about your work and it's that you write in solidarity with and you work with, but you don't always agree with no. The people you're working with, no. right? Yeah. And you feel free yeah. to yeah. to disagree in solidarity with, you know, and something we've talked about now and then on the podcast. And some of us who do activist research yeah. sometimes find ourselves in kind of a difficult relationship vis-a-vis the activists we work with because we're not, you know, we're not on message uh, and yeah. we find a way of disagreeing well, in solidarity. Does that still feel possible now? Well, of course. I mean, basically, it would be to me patronising absolutely patronizing to not disagree with people. You know, I do understand that, let's say, okay, so you're a white lady and you're in shantytown in Brazil or in South Africa, and you're disagreeing with what people are saying, then you have all this power. Well, I think that's why I'm glad I'm a woman. You don't always have that power. <laughs> and people don't see it. And that's not the end of the, of the thing. But yes, I've disagreed in every place I've been. And I think now of um, a piece that most people I don't think know about the articles I wrote in South Africa, but one, Who's the Killer, for example. Actually, in this field site that I had in a, a brand new shantytown near Parle, as actually uh, was a place where Frappizano wrote his book on whites in this very, very elite, very beautiful, very wealthy, very, not necessarily even all Africana, kind of a progressive community, uh, although it had plenty of racists as well. And um, so the time I had a big argument, I had gotten to know this shanty town. I couldn't live there. That would have been impossible. Uh, I didn't want to live in the white part. It was just before Nelson Mandela was elected. So things were uh, liminal. There was a lot of violence going on at that time. But I knew I could not live in the shanty town. That would not be uh, acceptable to people. I did not want to live in the white part of town. And then right in the middle was the colored community. And so I lived there. And it offended the colored community because they spoke Afrikaans. And it was very hard for me to communicate. I stayed with a family. You know, I would go to dinners and things with people. And I got to know the colored mayor, and that was okay. But they said, but your heart is really in the shanty town. And that's the way it always is. The colored are always left out, you know. And they, they were right. But anyway, uh, at this shanty town, there was a problem with 
young men because uh, they often were living three, four, five together in a little, you know, house. And most of the people there, well, they had come from all different. There were Koza and there were Sutu and there were even some Zulu people. And so there was a lot of tension in this place because it wasn't organic. And what happened was that three of these young men who were out of jobs and had no money or whatever stole I don't know. But anyway, so I went to one of the houses where they were keeping these boys had been whipped. And I have incredible photos. I mean, they were whipped, just welts on their body and blood and whatever, because it's too easy to steal in a shanty town. I mean, it's, it's like the sin of all sins. I remember that on the Alto Cruzeiro. It's too easy to steal from people, you know, because you don't have locks. You don't have any way of protecting yourself. So it was like the ultimate crime. And yet, boy, they really beat these kids up. And one, I thought, you know, was dehydrated and, you know, really was not on his feet or whatever. And so I knew a colored doctor and a young woman from Cape Town, and she came with me, and we broke into what was essentially their prison. I mean, it was not a real prison, but there were women sitting there and just watching them, and they weren't being given water. You know, so I took him to the hospital, and there was a big problem about me having done that. And so I talked to some of the young ANC and PAC guys, because as they used to say, ANC by day, PAC by night. I mean, everybody, the politics was very mixed up. And um, I had to confess, in a sense, to a bunch of people what I had done and why I had done it. And I, I said, I apologize. I understand you have your rules. But then I said, to the mothers here, they might have not wanted one of their kids to die of this. And some of the women started nodding their heads. <laughs> so I was like, lucky. So there's many times when I've argued with people. I mean, I people have said, well, when you did that book, Death Without Weeping, and you had all these babies dying, I mean, did you just stand there and take all the notes? And I said, mostly, mostly I did because there was no way that I could have taken care of them, except when I did, because it was close in my kin network to grab a kid and say, no, no, you're not going to kill this kid. I'm taking this kid. <laughs> taking this kid, going to get him down. And also, I thought that I had, I was like a godmother of several kids, that I then had a right to do it because I was asked to be the godmother. I couldn't just walk into a house. And I know my daughter, Jennifer, was so shocked because I went various times because I had three kids at the time when I was then an anthropologist and I had to be there without them and then I wanted to bring them back. Jennifer was very interested and wanted to go with me. And at one point she said, Mom, you were in that house and that woman uh, had just had a baby that died and she wasn't feeding this other baby. And... Um, you just walked out. You didn't do anything. And I said, well, you heard me. I asked her, do you think that if I took this child to the clinic that you could take care of the child? And she said, no. So I said, what was I to do? You could bring the baby. You could, I could give dehydration myself. You could do those things. But unless you can take that child, you can't. So you have to just, you know, let. And to Jennifer, that was just horrible that I had done that. 
So, you know, there's times you involve and there's other times you have to push back and say it's not appropriate. I'm thinking about some of the different threads from the conversation so far. And essentially, I was wondering what advice you give to your graduate students who find themselves in similar situations. You know, partly because I'm thinking about the way the institutions have changed around us, but partly I'm thinking you've had so much experience working in really fraught and traumatising situations, both for the people you're working with and I would gather for yourself as well. Are there things now that you would tell your graduate students? Well, you know, it really depends. This is where one of the things that maybe is important to say. You can't be a compañero in every place and time or even be an activist and is at times when it's not the right thing to do. Uh, It also is geographical. That is, in Latin America, the question, not everywhere, Argentina being very different from me working there than in Brazil, but in Central America or in many other parts of Latin America, they say either you're here, it's like working with Native Americans in the United States. I mean, they tell you what they want, and you have to do it. And yet it could be, we don't want anything from you, leave, or... In Brazil, and also during times of conflict and violence and whatever, their answer is, are you accompanying? That's, you know, the word. I mean, are you going to accompany us? And you have no other way to be an answer. I mean, you can, but you're not going to get very close to people. And sometimes that compromises your, I suppose, capacity to have certain kinds of impact and I think that's probably the question that that ties into what we were talking about the other day in class and and your kind of you know hints there David about sort of the changing context in which we work at institutions and within sort of broader governance kind of structures you can have an impact or or you can make a decision about you know morally what you can do and what you can cope with and one of the things that I was saying in class is that I could never do that work I would be trying to save every single yeah, baby yeah. or I wouldn't cope I, or I couldn't work with you know sex trafficked people or, or anything right. like that right. you have to yeah. kind of choose your own right. limitations you know with right. what you're personally right. capable of I like environmental destruction and you know kind of suicide and all that kind of thing that's within my capacity as a human to kind of cope with yeah. but there are also these institutional parameters I'm trying to imagine the decades it would take to get ethics approval to go and do the kind of work that you did in Brazil at many (laughs) institutions institutions that we're familiar with yeah and legally as well you know I imagine that in Australia I imagine many you know in the states as well that having a policy impact or a a public impact that had traction would very much depend on the way that you couched your research or the kind of the approach that you took. And there would be people who would say, you know, perhaps to use yourself as an example, oh, oh, she's a communist, you know, we're not going to listen to anything she has to say. But, yeah, any advice? I wrote a few articles, some of them very short, about how to handle the question of protection of human subjects and how to get through those I don't know what you call it here, IRBs, we call them. Human ethics. Human ethics, okay. And I suppose it's very similar where they really want to make sure the institution is never sued by anybody. (laughs) That's what I think it's about. It's to protect the institution, which is important. You don't want to make a mistake in a sense that someone else can't go to the field and you don't want the university to be sued. Okay, that's, that's fine. 
and there was plenty of fear about my working organ trafficking. I didn't know when I started this project. I kind of saw it as a medical ethics issue. And the more I got into it, the more I realized I was involved in criminology. These were crimes and syndicates that were international, and they were a kind of mafia. And also, in some places, they killed people. And also, I wanted to meet the criminals. That's very, very hard to do with at least our ethics boards. And I don't want to lie about what I'm going to do. And so I actually went to the IRB board and said what I was doing. And I had gotten a large grant. That was the only time in my life I kind of had a large grant. And it was from George Soros. And he would have been the only one crazy enough to support, you know, the Organs Watch. And even he got pretty frightened when he realized I was going to Europe and I was going to Israel and I was, uh, and I was working in the United States and I was finding it everywhere in different forms. But they couldn't figure it out. The IRB couldn't figure out. They had said, okay, Nancy, if you're going to be talking to people who could be arrested for the things that they're doing, obviously, of course, you're not going to use their names. But they said, well, more than that, how are you going to handle your papers with the actual names and addresses and whatever? Well, we could lock them up here, and we've gone through everything. And finally they said, no, 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 this is much too risky, what you're doing. You'd have to not remember the names of the people. I said, how can I tell you, I'm, you know, my, that I'm going to forget them? Uh, I might forget some, but, you know. <laughs> Natural I, attrition. But I'm not going to forget everybody. And the head of the IRB was really a good guy. He said, there's no way to do this. How will we do it? I said, I have, I have an answer. I'm an anthropologist. I will always be an anthropologist. When I started having trouble with the Catholic Church, my husband Mike said, she used to be a Catholic, but now she's an anthropologist. You know, <laughs> it's, taken this, it's taken the role that whatever that church had. And so I said, well, we wear many hats. And I got that from Hortense as well. Her view of, of this is when she worked for the labor women and the people in Chicago and whatever, she gave that up, she felt, when she became an ethnographer, although actually she stopped a lynching in Mississippi. So, in fact, she was an activist. But I said, okay, this is a freedom of speech, I guess, argument. I want to have the same rights that an investigative journalist has because some of the things I do, I publish in newspapers and I write magazine articles, I go on radio, I talk to various commissions, I'm a public anthropologist, that's before we really had that word, and I said, you're telling me that I don't have the right to, uh, I named some of my, our famous journalists that we had, and they said, you're right, you're right. And so they said, we are going to give you what the church would call a dispensation. But you can't be unethical. I said, of course not. And we'd like you to check in with us. We'd like you every year to tell us what you're doing. Well, I'll tell you, the first time that this came up was after Ireland. And I went and spent a year in South Boston, which was a large Irish community, to try to see if what I found in rural Ireland, because people were saying, you know, the psychiatrists and others, that maybe this was something that was more biopsychological and, uh, you know, really about the brain and not about culture and all of that. 
And so I said, okay, so I'll go and uh, spend a year. I had a postdoc at Harvard, and I'll use that time, you know, to, to study this. But that was just the beginning of, you know, the protection of human subjects, and I had to sign three different documents. And uh, I'll tell you the end of this one. So one was with Harvard because I have a postdoc there. One was with Berkeley because I was Berkeley. And the third one was with Tufts University because I was working in a, a deinstitutionalized hospital, basically community hospital with people uh, with severe schizophrenia, older, much older than the people I worked with in Ireland, and of course very, very sensitive. And so I did. I did everything that they said, but it was impossible. I'll tell you why. The people were schizophrenic. So in order to get, <laughs> to get their permission... I had to read this document to them, and they would have to sign it. And it made so much confusion that it was, like, hilarious. You know, I would spend all the day in this horrible—it was an old grocery store, basically, that had some broken sofas or whatever, and basically the people were just kept under drugs. They'd get uh, shots every week or so, and so they were all kind of like zombies, basically, with tardive dyskinesia. It was horrible. But anyway, I did get to know them pretty well. I began taking them out for walks and going because it was near the seashore and whatever. I even tried to take them on a couple of trips outside of South Boston on trains, and they got very frightened because South Boston was the only place they ever knew. But so in the deal, I had to pay them. And I said, gee, we just don't pay the people we work with because it kind of dehumanizes the whole relationship, I understand. But maybe there's a way I could give money so they wouldn't have to eat bologna sandwiches every day and they could eat more. I'm happy to do that, but I don't want to pay them. No, 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 you have to pay them. That's part of the deal. And you have to ask their permission. So here's the two things. So the one is a woman comes in, we talk, and after about a half an hour, I could see she's getting a little upset. I said, okay, I said, that's, that's fine now. You know, I'll see you some other time. And so I said, I guess now is the, I, don't know, I guess now is the time for the payment. And she looks at me and she says yes, and she goes into her big wallet and she's trying to pay me. <laughs> and I said, Dorothy, I'm paying you. And she said, You're paying me. I, oh, I don't understand why you're paying me. <laughs> <laughs> because they didn't know what an anthropologist was exactly. So then I had to have this discussion with all of the people sitting there, some of them sleeping. Okay, uh, hi, I'm here, and you know that I hang out every day here, and I have to tell you that if you have any questions about me, I, you know my name, and you know that I said I'm an anthropologist. Do you know what an anthropologist is? Have I been able to explain it? Um no, I don't really know. Okay. I said, well, an anthropologist studies culture. Oh, I know about that. I know all about culture. Well, oh, well, why? Well, it's great. Tell us about culture. He said, well, when you get sick, you get these cultures in your throat. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, what I was trying to say is that if you work with people that have severe psychosis, you do your best, but how can you do it? In uh, Argentina... I'm working in what I hope is now over, a death camp of a hospital for mentally impaired people. You can't get their permission except through a human relationship. You know when they don't want to, I mean, we think we 
force people to talk to us. I mean, you can't. And you can't throw money at them. I mean, it's bad. And you can't get everyone to want to collaborate with you. So it's a search. It's a quest, basically. And I guess what I would tell the graduate students is I just think that anthropology is such a gift to all of us because of the freedom it gives us. We make up anthropology as we go along. I mean, there are books, there are texts, there are theories, and you know, we haven't talked about that, but you know, the people that have so inspired me throughout my career, everyone, and they're not all anthropologists, many of them are not. They're either famous, well, not so famous psychiatrists or philosophers. I mean, Levinas has been really one of my guiding ethical persons. You know, as I said, Franco Basaglia, the radical uh, Italian psychiatrist. Oliver Sacks, who I actually wrote letters to before he was famous when he first began writing about migraines and things. I tried to give him a job when I was chair of the anthropology <laughs> department. What could have been? I, I said, you know, you are an anthropologist. And actually, that came into his book, Anthropologist on Mars. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that it is this freedom that we kind of make it up as we go along. I wrote a little piece uh, recently about with all the homophobia and everything, you know, and what would homophilia, what would this be to us? What it is is a term that was used for plants and insects that get close to each other that entangle themselves. I've often said anthropology is about curiosity, but it's not an evil curiosity. It's actually a loving curiosity. It's that what we really want to do is just get close, as close as you'll allow us to get, and um, that we get pleasure from that, and I don't think it's bad. And, you know, there may be some eroticism in it, just loving people, loving bodies. Loving different places, different foods, different smells, different desires, different whatever it is. I mean, I think it just makes us more human. You know, I had one little essay that I wrote about, can anthropology save the world? And I think in a way it can, exactly for this desire to be open to whatever people have to say. And as I said, you argue, you disagree, whatever, but that's what humans do. And I think sometimes if we're so respectful that we become like the silent butler at a table or something, you know, that you're just saying, well, I can't. I mean, there are times when you can't, when you can't intervene, when you only can sit there and watch and listen. There are definitely times for that. So I don't think that one has to be militant or engaged. Sometimes it's just enough to understand, to witness, and modest witness. You know, not to witness as though I'm going to be primo levi or something about it. Just show up for people. Yeah, just showing up. Just show up. Being there. Hanging out. You know, perhaps on the subject of witnessing and also on the subject of saving the world, actually, I think probably that your most recent stuff on the Pope, on the church, on child sexual abuse, sexual abuse. most of our listeners will, you know, yeah. they might know your other stuff better than that. Yeah. Could you just actually tell us a little bit about what you're doing now? Oh, yeah. Well, that goes way back. I don't know whether you want me to say how I got to know the Pope or how I got involved, because it really, the clerical, the sexual abuse is another topic, although I'm trying to now engage the Vatican around it. But that's not how I got to know Pope Francis. It was about organ trafficking. 
I mean, he's totally dedicated to human trafficking, as he is to refugees and to breaking borders and really good things. How I was invited to the Vatican in 2015 was a total amazement to me because I had been writing articles, some of them about sexual abuse going back to Newfoundland and some of them about things that were happening in the United States. But more than that, when Benedict decided to retire, I was called by media. They saw me already as a kind of a Pope watcher or whatever. They asked me to be on a panel to talk about what kind of pope might come out of this. So I said, well, I think we might be thinking about someone from the third world. People talk about some cardinals in, in Africa. They look kind of interesting, some of them. And I said, but I think we need a Latin Americanist. And I think we need someone from the South. And I think we could have someone who might be um, like a Franciscan. I didn't say Jesuit, I said Franciscan. And I said, you know, I think someone who knows the poor and understands them and maybe someone who understands something about liberation theology. So, okay. And then there is the announcement that Jorge Mario Bergoglio was going to be the next pope, and I was horrified. I only knew him from my work in Argentina when he was not the best Jesuit provincial or leader of the Jesuits in Argentina during the Dirty War. He was at that time a dour man, pious, authoritarian, and certainly not loved by the Jesuits. And so I wrote an article called, Can Even God Forgive Jorge Bergoglio? <laughs> and in this told the history about his role, which was, in the end, me saying, of course, when we're living at a time of terror, and Argentina was one of the worst terrors in Latin America, 30,000 people killed tortured, thrown into the water from planes. And he saved some people. He definitely got them out. But there were some, including these two liberation theologian priests, and he basically, you might say, defrocked them and then put them in great danger. And they were arrested immediately and tortured and were going to be dropped in the sea. He did intervene, and so I told him things he did do and he didn't do. And, you know, his his boss. He was like 17, 18 years old when he worked for that woman that had a chemistry um, factory. And he let her go, really. She asked for help because her daughter had already been killed. They were both liberation theologian type people. And he did very little. So he went to the house and he said to her, uh, let me go through your books. Up, oh, you've got a volume of Capital. I'll take that. Take this book. And I think what you have to do is stay and people know you, you know, maybe wear dark glasses. They'll be after you. And they got her. She washed up her body. And so I wrote about it and I said, you know, no one knows at a time like this what we would do. I can talk plenty about, you know, having a habit of courage or whatever, but just wait until it happens to you. You know, I've seen things in South Africa or whatever, and you just don't know. And so you don't rush to judgment about a person. He was 37 and a half years old when he was made this head of the Jesuits and during this horrible era. And so can God forgive Jorge? I said, yeah, because the church can forgive anybody. But he has to confess what he did, make reparations, 
and he has to make a new social contract, a new political contract. And I was teasing a little bit. I mean, I, I did it with a certain amount of humor. Who the hell am I, you know, to say that? And and then I went on, and I also started writing other critical things or whatever about the church. You know, it's like, what do we owe? What do we owe to the world as anthropologists? What do we owe to students? What do we owe to our readers? What do we owe? I think we owe critique the best we can. So... Anyway, I began to see that my guy's really changing, and he's really a different kind of a guy. And, you know, I wrote this awful thing about him, and oof. <laughs> and so then I get an invitation to come to the Vatican in 2015, and it came with a note that Pope had written. The first thing he did when he got into the Vatican he said, this pontifical institute of science and social science has existed, I don't know, for maybe three decades. No one academic, I think, unless you're a theologian, ever knew about it. And so he said, we must look at human trafficking, and it must also be on organ trafficking. So that was like his first note. And finally, they had this meeting, and I was invited. And I, I said, I, I, I mean, does he know that I wrote this article about him. But I went, and I was sure somehow that when I would get to the Vatican, and I didn't even know where, you know, I was going to be staying, so the cab brought me there, and I got to the door, and I thought, yeah, they may throw me out tomorrow. When they look me up, and they see some of the things I've written about the Catholic Church, I'll be out of there. I would be 100% sure I was being catfished. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. So anyway, I got in there, and they said, oh, yes, Nancy, well, you're on the third floor here. You stay there. And, and they said, go have lunch here. And I walk in, and there's Pope Francis sitting there with Sean O'Malley, the cardinal from Boston. And I bet I know what they were talking about <laughs> now, but I didn't at that point. I, so I just kind of put my head down and whatever. But we had a very, very interesting conference with 20 people. It was a plenary session. The Pope, in the middle of it, came and listened to some of the recommendations we had about organs and whatever. And there were atheists, there were sociologists, there were anthropologists, there were people of theory, there were people of action, there were all kinds in this 20 group, but there were about five of us who were women. And we were really shaking it up a little bit, so that's a couple of the cardinals that were there were quite upset about things we were saying. They were saying things like, there's no such thing as sex work, is only prostitution. Either you're a victim of it or you're whatever. We say, no, 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 no. There is sex work. It may not be the greatest work in the world, but it's there and it's a pathway for a lot of women. And we really have to be supportive of this. And, you know, the cardinals are just nuts about all of this. But anyway, we all had a chance because there were only 20 to just go to him and talk. And I, I just stayed back. I was like the last one to go up, and I thought, can I do this? You couldn't give gifts, supposedly, but if you had something you wanted to give, you put it in a cellophane bag, you could see through it. So I tucked in the Spanish translation of Death Without Weeping, and then I had, in Italian, a couple of things I had done on organ trafficking, and then I had some words I wanted to tell him. When I got there, I just fell down, really, and I was looking for, you know, the ring or whatever, and he just laughed. He said, come on, get up, get up, get up. And uh, whatever I was saying was part Latin, part Portuguese, part whatever, part Spanish about organ trafficking, and, and I'm giving him this book, and these bodyguards who had chests like this, and they quickly grabbed it out of his hand, and he 
pushed them back. He said, I want these books. I just couldn't believe it. You know, I was overwhelmed how I have since communicated. I, I went back last April again and saw him again. I communicate to him through, I guess you would call him the chancellor of the Pontifical Institute. There's usually a president that's, uh, you know, an academic, and he's very, very progressive. He's a Monsignor Bishop, both, and everything I've written since. I did a piece on the Pope and canonization of Junipero Serra. Okay, great for Latin Spanish Americans. Horrible for the indigenous people. He was part of what was a real, I mean, Native Americans have suffered all over, but in California, and especially in the mission system, it was genocide. And the Jesuits, most of them Jesuits, they knew it. And they left those missions. Those missions were not very long. And they wrote letters, and they said, they're all dying. We don't know why dying, but, uh, you know, we don't want to stay here. We don't want to be a church of the dead. So anyway, I gave all of this in an essay on witness of a failed theology or something. I, I sent it, and uh, it got to Pope Francis. I went to the canonization. That was another, like, Hortense Powdermaker deal. I went with... Adrian Pine is a wonderful Latin Americanist anthropologist. She works in Honduras and is very, very radical. So we went to the canonization, and I tried to get my local parish, which I occasionally go to uh, because I, the priests are pretty interesting, and tried to get a ticket. And I had to go to our bishop. And nope, there was no ticket for me, that was for sure. I tried um, a couple of our legislators, local, who were Catholic, and I said, can I get one? They weren't going to give me one. Finally, finally, they came up with something where I would be, like, outside and not nowhere's near. The, and, um, well, I wore my black dress, and I wore my black shoes, and all of a sudden I spoke Portuguese, and I walked in, and uh, I was with Adrian. So Adrian says, what are you doing? I said, well, you can either come with Sister Nancy or not. <laughs> I got to the front row. <laughs> and I have to say, what was amazing about it was to see closely. The only thing that Francis had to do was to take his, um, his staff and just say, Accetto, I accept it or not. And uh, I wrote about it. I mean, it was really a beautiful presentation. It was gorgeous outdoors. It was, you know, music that went back to 16th century Spanish music, to hip-hop music, to everything. I mean, it was really well, well done. But he sat there, and he just was not happy to do it. He really was not. And then when they brought him inside the Capitol where there is a statue, he wouldn't look at it. So I don't know how he manages to survive in the Vatican. So anyway, all of us wrote uh, a book, essentially, that was published by the Vatican on human trafficking, and it's quite a good source. I think it's based on two, two conferences that he's done on human trafficking, and his understanding of that is profound. And then this last meeting was different. It was a pastoral meeting, and I wasn't sure quite what pastoral meant. And it was not held in the Vatican. 
It was on human trafficking. It was held in uh, Sacrefono, I think is the name of it. And it's sort of a retreat house for the uh, Vatican and people that visit and for conferences. But we were kind of cornered in a sense there because you couldn't get back and forth to Rome very easily. And the meetings were 200 people rather than 20. But what was odd about it to me was that it really was a meeting of very, very dedicated and some conservative Catholics. Almost all were priests, bishops, cardinals, nuns. At first, I didn't really know, because you didn't get a list of the names of everyone. There were about 10 tables, and you worked with a group of about eight. And the idea was that uh, you know one of its organizations within the Vatican is on migrants and refugees, which he cares about. So this was to look at protocols that they had done and to come up with suggestions as to how churches in different countries can really help migrants and refugees and immigration problems, and so, you know, how to apply it in different cultures and such. But everyone was dressed in regular clothing, and so I didn't know that Robert Stark, who was sort of the Vatican representative for our group, was a priest. I didn't know that the women at the table were nuns. I mean, they just didn't wear their... Mm. And it led to some very, very interesting things. So this question about not necessarily speaking truth to power, but speaking what you think, you know, mm. needs to be said. Mm -hmm. And so we were dealing with a lot on sex trafficking. I almost thought that it was too much. And some of the other women that were there, nuns or whatever... By about the fourth day, we sort of had it, and we said, look, human trafficking <laughs> is about a lot of things. Work trafficking, you know, people on boats, people on farms. I mean, there's, why so much on sex trafficking? And I kind of felt almost in a psychoanalytic moment that it was a kind of deflection of their own sex trafficking. While I was there, I actually made that point, and when I gave my talk, and of course they wanted me again to talk about organ trafficking, but I brought in immigration and what was happening at our borders, and also how Syrians in particular have been refugees that had to pay with their kidneys to get on boats and whatever. So it does exist that there's still this deformation of the body for people to live elsewhere or live a, a better life. But I was pretty rude and worked up by the time I got up to speak. And I was next to a colleague. Yeah, she was the other person who was really an outsider. She's actually the head of liver transplantation at UCSF. And her talk was to defend transplant surgeons from my awful kind of views of mm. the problems with transplant, which was understandable. But while I was giving my talk, I said, you know, we've been talking a lot about sex trafficking. And yes, I do talk about sex and kidneys because, of course, with all of these forms of human trafficking, you'll find that they overlap with drugs or with, you know, selling guns. It's never a very clear picture that this is just organ trafficking. And I said, but then we really do have to discuss the sex trafficking within the Catholic Church. And that was the first time I said it so shocked. And the person that was head of this Institute on Refugees and Migrants slammed down. And then the final day, when he talked about the main points that had been discussed about things, 
he just talked about how good transplant in the world was and whatever. He was clearly very, very angry at what I had said. And Monsignor Sarando was there, Marcelo, and he got up and he just said, you're absolutely wrong. Nancy knows more about human trafficking in organs than anyone else in the world. She has evidence. She has scientific data. And you may not just drop this off. So that was quite amazing. And I was very, very grateful. But it's through this bishop that I have sent messages. And I finally got this last time, I actually have it here, a letter from the Vatican State Department saying that Pope Francis wants you to know that he really appreciated all of your recommendations about human trafficking, and we are really grateful to you. So it's quite amazing because I still remain, you know, a critic. I mean, I think that Francis has been amazing. You said earlier that one of the things anthropology can give is the gift of critique. Yeah. Do you suppose he's received that as a gift? Well, you know, I wrote an article about what I thought of him in action and listening to him and how he reacts to people and whatever. I saw him as someone who was maybe not feeling that it's a great gift to be inside the Vatican, but feeling that there's things he can do and will try to do. And I think he is surrounded by enemies. He can't get things totally over all the cardinals and the curia, and he doesn't have <laughs> infallibility in a sense. He can't just say, let this happen, and it will happen. And the questions I've always worried about with him and have written about is really his relationship to women. He's good on so many topics, but you know, he's criticized Judith Butler for her work, and he sees gender studies as diabolic. I mean, he's actually used the word diabolic. It reminds me a little bit, and I might send him a copy because Ivan Illich changed. I don't know if you know who Ivan Illich is, but anyway, he came to Berkeley several times, and I got to know him. He was always a hero for me in his earlier books. Then he writes this book, Gender, and all the feminists were furious about it because Illich basically was himself against a kind of feminism, which he thought would always fail. He thought that there would then be just one sex and women would be, you know, men, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody would be men. Mm. <laughs> um, and, you know, he recovered from that. He got plenty of... Uh, I felt so bad that the only time I ever got to actually speak with him, not just at a reception or, you know, something, but on a panel, had to be with a bunch of very angry feminists telling him that men and women were not binary oppositions and gender is a continuum, for heaven's sakes. I mean, he doesn't understand. There are men who are feminists, you know, and there are plenty of women who are macho men. Mm -hmm. uh, mm. A lot of them are administrators, you know, in mm. universities mm -hmm. and places. I have to deal with them all the time. Mm. So, you know, he has to understand that it's a flexible thing. The Pope? Yeah, and I, I will say that I think he is moving a mm. bit. I think he got a lot of feedback <laughs> on what he had to say about gender. And I felt also that was one of the things that I brought up at the conference when we talked about abortion. You know, that's a really tough topic for Catholics. And I mean, it's hard, but good Lord, 
there's times when it has to be done. It just has to. I mean, the child will not get the care and the love or the capacity or whatever. And so that's sort of an issue. And so I've addressed these in many different ways. I wrote a piece in the Boston Review about the referendum in Ireland. I'm working back in Ireland again now, working with the New Ireland. The New Ireland is the most secular country in Europe. They've had it with the Catholic Church. And it's not just people in Dublin or academics in Cork. There's a sense in the air that the church had deceived them. Mm. I mean, I went last September after conferences in Cork. I'm part of a group there. I went to the west of Ireland where I had worked the west of the west. And on the trains, people talking really angrily about, you know, how they had been betrayed by the church because mainly, I suppose, of the problem of the baby homes, those mother-child homes. A tomb in Galway, they found one of the remains of these homes, which actually they still exist, some of them. Mm. And it used to be until probably the 1980s that if a girl got pregnant, she was sent to the homes run by the Bon Secure nuns, sisters. Mm. They would have to give birth there and leave the baby there. So they never got to keep their babies. And they were told babies would be adopted. Don't worry, dear. You can't go back to your community with a baby. There's just no way. It's impossible, that sort of thing. But what happened is that a local historian in Galway, a woman named Corliss, she knew what everybody else knew, that they were supposed to be, first of all, adopted in Ireland, and then maybe the United States or Canada or, you know, Australia or whatever, mm-hmm. wherever there were clusters of Catholics. Where did those babies actually go in the end? And she said, I want to look at their records. And then she started looking at obituaries of babies and death certificates. And she found that hundreds and hundreds of the babies from this one home had died. Well, where were they? Well... They were thrown in a sewer, in the septic tank, 800 of them, and probably more. And that happened, I think, between 1950s and the end of the 80s. And now the Irish government has a public bioarchaeological project to get those remains, find out who they were, get the DNA of them. It's like a little dirty war against babies, basically. So that really weighs so heavy on people because it's the same thing as the problem with the sexual abuse. There's something rotten in the institution. Mm -hmm. There's something anti-human in lots of different ways. And it's like, you know, the rapes of nuns and other things. You know, everybody talks about children. Yes, it's horrible. And it's boys. It's always boys because they're more available. It's situational. And also, I think... Most mothers have not been warning their sons, watch out for this. So I think that there are also gender issues here in this. So I think that what's needed is what I was calling a theology of sex, a theology of women that doesn't quite exist yet in the Vatican. Now, obviously, I mean, if I'm going to talk about, you know, I'm trying to just do it like a 12-step. I only have an hour. What are the 12 things that need to be done Mm -hmm. in order to end this? And in a way, you know, I don't want to say the obvious, because the obvious is 
women don't rape children. I mean, now I'm sounding like a binary, but I mean, at least all of the statistics that they have is that they don't do it. I don't want to be like anti-men, but if you bring a lot of women in, you know, it's going, of course, it's not happening as much now. I mean, it's been mainly, mainly over. You know, again, now I sound like the Pope because I'm talking about a gender divide, but nobody has really talked about that. I mean, women don't do this. Um, I don't know why. I feel like you I think could, it's not studied? Uh, I, that feels like it could be another two or three hour conversation. It could be. It could I, be. I, I, it could know. be. Getting back to the Pope, he doesn't understand the suffering of women. He doesn't understand what it means to give birth to a baby. And at our table at the Vatican, Pope wasn't there, they said when we were talking about contraception, they were still against contraception. I said, oh my God, there are people here still are against contraception. Good Lord, got a lot of work to do. But this was not the pontifical, I mean, this was not at the academy. Mm-hmm. They were not scholars. They were priests and nuns and bishops and mm-hmm. cardinals. But to see how out of it the church was there, it was not Pope Francis. It was the church mm-hmm. that was there. This was terrible. And uh, I said, well, if a woman is raped, we were talking about the fact that uh, in terms of sex trafficking and we brought up rape. And I I said, well, and women who are raped, especially at war or whatever, I said, do you think that the woman needs to carry that baby? And their answer was, well, but the baby is innocent. I said, but not innocent to the mother who, not saying that she would hold the baby responsible, But it's asking so much of women to do that. Anyway, in the latest changes of Pope Francis, so I have been sending letters. I got, actually, I have been a friend of Jerry Brown, our governor, for many years. Uh, You know, he's now retired. But he was a decent person. He was not good with our mass incarceration, but then he did (laughs) apologize for it and did a lot to end that, so Mm -hmm. it's getting much better. And, you know, his follower, Newsom, just in... January, Jerry stepped down. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What I wanted was I wanted to have at least a moratorium on death row and mm-hmm. the death penalty mm-hmm. as a penalty mm-hmm. uh, just until we could finally stop this horrible thing. And I knew mm-hmm. that the Pope is very much against, totally against the death penalty. It's just unbelievable. And of course, in most of Europe, it is. And so it was like the last few days of Jerry Brown's. And I said, if I write to Jerry, he knows what I think about this. What if I could get the Pope to do it? (laughs) And so Mm. I I wrote to Marcelo in the Vatican, and I said, Marcelo, there's two days left. And do you think we could get a letter from Pope Francis? Because he loves Francis. Everybody loves Francis. And that's what they did. And the letter went to Jerry, and then he stepped down two days later, and the first thing that Gavin Newsom did was to put a moratorium on the death penalty. It's amazing. <laughs> I have the letters. It's amazing. <laughs> that might also be a good moment sort to of, tie up, just because yeah. I'm mindful of having taken up a lot of your yeah. time. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank, thank you, for, you for the opportunity. Oh, to it's do an this. absolute pleasure. Thanks again enormously for joining us for another conversation in anthropology at Deakin. Uh, today we've been speaking with Dr. Nancy Shepard Hughes from the University of California, Berkeley, and Tanya King from Deakin University. 
If you'd like to learn more about Nancy's work, you can find her at the University of California Berkeley webpage. And if you'd like to learn more about Tanya's work, you can also find her at the uh, Deakin University Anthropology webpage. Conversations in Anthropology at Deakin is produced by me, David Giles, and Timothy Neal, with support from the Faculty of Arts and Education at Deakin University, and in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. If you'd like to get in touch with us about the show, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Giles, and Tim is at TD Neal. Uh, And if you enjoyed this episode, think about giving us a review on iTunes or elsewhere. I guess how I got engaged with uh, the Pope started before... Wait, you're engaged? Engaged, yes. Engaged with the Pope. Can he get married? I didn't know. David could not (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. I like that. Engaged with the Pope. That's interesting. (laughs)